told you you were naked. <laughs> Y'all are all right now. I just saw a bunch of smiles like, <laughs> no, not literally. No, not like how I was laying in my bed and I just wake up and be like, no one told me I was naked. Oh, no, I forgot to put on clothes. No, not that. This actually is a, is a part of a verse from Genesis chapter 3, verse 11. I didn't know that's exactly where it was located because, no, I am not a machine. And I wasn't just like, Rolodex, okay, there it is. Like, I said that the other day, and my kid said, what's a Rolodex? <laughs> but I, I was like, well, I know it's, it's during chapter 3 somewhere. And so I'm, I'm reading, and I, and I run across it. Who told you you were naked? Now, this idea of communion, I decided as I was reading this, and y'all have to kind of take a journey through the mind of Jared, which is, you know, more like Alice in Wonderland kind of a thing. And I started here and ended up back where I, so I'm kind of starting you guys where I ended up, and then we're going to go in reverse, (laughs) if that makes sense. Because as I was studying this, I, I, I stumbled back to communion. And so I was like, well, I want to really dive into the term communion in Scripture. I really want to like understand where the term is. This is actually one of those rare instances, guys, that's just pretty cool. The English word communion, the Greek word for communion, and the Hebrew word for communion are all like identical. There's no change. It's the same word. Now, it's not pronounced the same way. If you're like, it's the same word? No, you can't say communion to someone who speaks Hebrew. And they'll be like, oh, I know. Like, like, I mean, unless they know English, they don't know it. It's pronounced differently, but the meaning is the same. If you're not aware, Scripture itself is written in a multitude of languages, three core languages. And so when you have different languages, right, you have different meanings of words. Yes? So sometimes when we translate things, we, we don't, it's not like the wrong translation. It just doesn't have the full meaning of it. And in this instance, the word communion actually means the same thing. Sometimes you'll see it in Scripture as communion. You'll see it as fellowship sometimes, the word fellowship. That doesn't mean every time you see the word fellowship, it's the same word. But you'll see the words communion, see the word fellowship. Sometimes you'll see the word a partaker of, and it's actually the, the same word. And this word communion, you can actually even like just Google. what In English, what does the word communion mean? And this is the same definition. And it means an exchange or sharing of intimate ideas, thoughts desires. An intimate sharing of thoughts, ideas. That doesn't mean like what's your favorite color, right? I'm talking about the, like the, the intimate thoughts. You ever had one of those, we, we used to call them CTJs. Anybody know what a CTJ is? Come to Jesus meeting? No? Okay, honey, it is just me. I don't know. <laughs> I grew up in a weird house, I guess. <laughs> we call them CTJs. Come to Jesus meeting. That means, like, we're about to talk about this really hard, really deep thing that we may or may not want to talk about. It may or may not even be bad. It just may be uncomfortable to address. That's what the word communion means, an exchange of thought and desire that are intimate, that are deep, meaningful things. By definition, the exact opposite of superficial, small talk. I'm going to say it this way. God hates small talk. He's tired of small talk. He wants communion. 
Now, if you look it up in Greek and Hebrew, it has that, carries that same definition, but what it also, and I love the way that Strong's, the Strong's Concordance puts it this way. Social intimacy. So social, conversational, like relational intimacy. Another word that it uses is social intercourse. So when you read through scripture and you see the word communion, it's not saying, oh, the time that you take some bread and some juice and you say a little prayer. And No, it's saying this is an intimate exchange of thoughts, desires. That's constant. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapters 10, 6, and 3. We've been using those in some of our evenings. And last week, I believe as well, we reference them. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and 3. The whole chapters, just read them. It's kind of addressing these general ideas. And this term communion and fellowship comes up quite a bit. In Acts chapter 2, it's the beginning of the church, right? The beginning of, of, the, the, of the New Testament church. And, and after the Spirit has come and everything like that, here's what happens. It says now, the communion. And they fellowshiped. They were connected with the Spirit of God in an intimate exchange of ideas, thoughts. There's several other, like Romans 15. This is where I'm just quoting you some of them because then we're going to go. Like, this is like all the check engine, like, yes, rudders, yes. Okay, here's all the information. Romans 15. So communion is two parties doing this, this intimate exchange. Community is a large group of people that have this thing in common. Whatever it is that unites them, they have it in common, and now they're sharing and exchanging these particular ideas. That makes sense? Like, in, in the natural, we can understand this, right? We have a, they even call it, so I would be considered a part of the tech community. I keep up with technology things. That's what I do. I do programming, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I know of people that you guys don't even know of, and they're really important people in the tech industry. And y'all are like, Elon Musk. And it's like, yeah, important. But, like, I'm talking about the guy who, like, sat there and figured out how to do what that dude decided to do, you know. Because I'm a part of the tech community. But guess what I typically don't talk about with the tech community? My kids. Because most of them don't have any. And they're like, there's other people in the world besides screens? It's like, yes, there is. Why? Because that's what unites us. That's the thing that we have deep conversations about how we, how we do this and how we do that, and right? Because right? that's that community. But on the flip side, I have another community. It's my family. And I very rarely talk about technology. I swear my wife just goes like to sleep mode, just like when I'm talking about it. Different community. We're united about different things. Yes, does that make sense? So communion with God is supposed to be the union of the church community. This intimate exchanging of ideas with the Spirit of God. Now, real quick, what some of you guys are thinking right now is exchanging of thoughts and ideas. Yeah, like I share my thoughts with God. No, exchanging meaning you give up your thoughts and take on his. Not like, I, like, not like oh yeah, like I get to tell him all of my problems and he tells me about his. He ain't got none except for you. It's a joke, okay? God, you should have seen some people. Like, <laughs> He is wanting to exchange your human nature for his spiritual nature. This is communion. 
Now to understand this, we are given three chapters, which are my three favorite chapters in all of history that has ever been written, that ever will be written. And that's Genesis chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. There's a lot we can say and do with these three chapters. My personal belief, and I have yet to be proven wrong, is that everything that you believe can and should be tied back to these three chapters. Everything spawns from these two chapters. It is some of the most brilliant literature in and of itself on top of the spiritual understanding that it has. And this is where I need you to put your thinking caps on and like ramp up. Y'all had burritos and coffee and we let you lull through some music and the spirit of God spoke to you. Now I need you to engage Maverick, okay? Because we're, we're at takeoff here, okay? I'm going to say a lot of information right here. The first three chapters of Genesis start off with the creation of the world. Just real quick, they are not intended to explain to you scientifically how God did what he did. If you go to Genesis and you're trying to find science in it, you will not necessarily find science in it. Does that mean that it is not true? No, it is true. But at the time it was written, they didn't really care about molecules and all that, nor did they know they existed. So when they wrote it, they wrote it in the level that they understood it. God spoke it. He did it. That's for all of you people who like science, okay? We can have that debate on a whole other time. It's really cool. I believe most of science, most of science is trying to tell the same story that we already know. God did what he did, and science is saying how he did it, okay? Science discusses mechanisms, things that make it work, right? Whereas over here, Scripture and God is the agent that did it. Okay? okay? I got one person on board with me. Me and you, Ryan, all day. Let me explain that again, okay? Science as a whole is trying to describe mechanisms that do things. Scripture and God is the agent that made it do it. The best example I've ever heard is a fantastic one. It's better if you hear it from the guy because he's Irish and it sounds really cool when you hear an Irish guy saying a pot of tea and all that. Well, that kind of sounded more English, didn't it? I'm not good with accents, okay, but whatever. And he says this right there. He's, he's having an argument with a scientist, okay? This is all just to give you a baseline of where I'm going. Y'all are like, how does that have anything to do with communion? It doesn't, except for the fact that you may misunderstand everything I'm about to say if you don't get this, okay? These next three points, okay? He says this, he's talking to a, a, a scientist, and he says, why is the kettle boiling? And the scientist begins to describe to him the heat mechanism that begins to agitate the molecules, and when they reach this certain temperature, and he says, and that's why the water's boiling in the kettle. And the guy just looks at him and says, no, I wanted a cup of tea. Both explanations work. They're describing different things. The agent, the person who desired it, wanted it, and then the mechanisms that it used to get there. Simple enough. Now, in this, you get, in chapter 1, you get the six days of creation. Most of you think, no, six days of creation, and then the seventh day is mentioned at the beginning of chapter 2. I'm not going to read the entire chapter to you. We're going to read parts of it. But it starts off, in the beginning, God created, yes? Okay? God created all things. That's what it's actually claiming. The very initial statement about God is that everything that is and will be ever came from him. And then it goes on and it talks about how he did in day one and day two and day three, right? All the way down to day six. Anybody knows what happened on day seven? He rested from all of his works because they were what? Good and, thank you, someone read the Bible. And complete, it's done, finished. Challenge, go read chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. Guess what you don't see? 
the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So was he finished or not finished? Yes, the very next verse actually after that says, in his creation of all things, this is a thing that took place. Now, what you have to understand is two things. I know this is like, y'all are like, are we back to Wednesdays of how to study your Bible and exegete and isogete? What is happening right now? I liked it better when the flowy music and you were saying impactful words that got me moving. No, God says, understand some stuff, get smart. Because then we miss the meaning of what God's trying to illustrate to us through the people who wrote this. The very next verse says this happened a while. The number one thing you need to understand is Scripture, all the Bible, all the things that were taken out of it were taken out of it because they didn't pertain to the core understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. That is why you'll notice if you start reading through all the begots, so-and-so, begot, so-and-so, begot, that means to have, begot, so-and-so, begot, so-and-so, and then you all forgot so-and-so. As you go through that, you'll notice when it says this person had this man and th- these three, three sons, and then it only follows one son. It's like that son had this person, and then we don't care about him anymore. It's not because there's not necessarily documentation about these people. It's because they are trying to get you to understand the lineage of one person, the person of Jesus Christ. So when we start with the story of Adam and Eve, the reason we are starting there is because they are the beginning lineage of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, real quick, some other little fun facts for you. Their names could or could not have been Adam and Eve. We don't really know. The name Eve means the mother of all, and the name Adam actually comes from the Hebrew and the Aramaic word for man, which is Adam or Adaham, meaning plural. Is that too much already? I ain't even actually got anywhere yet. So it's, this is saying, these, these are the beginning of this thing. And it actually says that. This is the beginning of the generations of Adam. And then it begins to describe, and God reached and formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his uh, nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. God called the man Adam and so on and so forth, and we see it. And then it finds out very quickly that man is self-destructs, and it says, let's, let's get him somebody that can keep him straight. That was where women were created. Now, here's a big thing you need to understand about this story. Guys, can we all agree, by show of hands, God is bigger than us. So the most we could possibly understand is still not as much as God understands, yes? So let's make sure and be very careful that we don't make God very, very small. And here's why I say that. Can... What is, a, what is a story that is based on a true story? If, if you watch something, it says based on a true story. Meaning there's parts of it that are true. Like the core elements are true. Maybe the people that they use, maybe the places that they are, all of these things are true, yes? But in the intermedium of that, they use different things to help you understand and describe what these people were going through, what happened, right? Yes, everybody follow that? This is kind of what Genesis chapter 2 is. It is using real-life things and scenarios, but it's using metaphor and understanding and poetry to help you get what happened. Now, the reason that's important, because it is trying to explain to you spiritual things. Everybody say, the Bible is about spiritual things. If you read the Bible and think it is all to help you with your natural understanding... You are sorely mistaken, and you will get maybe, maybe 25% of what it's trying to say. Matter of fact, come Wednesday, y'all are about to find that out. We're studying on a particular chapter on Wednesday as to why Jacob is going to go to hell. I'm just kidding. 
we're looking at something on Wednesday that has to do a whole lot with culture and these types of things, but well, what, is, what does it mean spiritually? Because obviously it's not just written because if it's the word of God and it's eternal, it can't just pertain to the people of the day. What does it mean for us, right? So when we read Genesis and we read the story of Adam and Eve, if you were just reading it thinking that they were like, and, you know, let me tell you a story about a man named Jeb or something. Like, this is not just to give you the story. Because what would be the use of it? Why document it? It's for spiritual understanding. Here's the other way we know this. Who has ever seen the tree of knowledge of good and evil? I think you may have partaken of the evil side a little too much. Okay, so <laughs> we don't see these trees. Are they real? Oh, we better be careful. Yes, they're real, but are they natural? No. Anybody ever seen the tree of life? No. So are they a physical tree that is growing somewhere over near Baghdad and, you know, ancient Mesopotamia? More than likely, if you look at it from what it describes. No. However, is it true? Is it real? Yes, because it's spiritual. It's trying to help you understand spiritually what they were encountering and what they were engaging in. Does that make sense? You can search me, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me. I will stay here all day and and help you understand that. I see some people looking at me like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I can't lift up one eyebrow, but if I could, that's what I would do right now. That's how some of y'all looking at me. This is simply understood when we begin to break it down and actually read what it's talking about because he had already created all things. Now we're looking at one specific group, one specific people that gets us to the person of Christ. And these specific people, it is talking about their relationship with God initially. That's where it opens with saying he breathes his breath and man becomes a living soul. As you continue to read on, In chapter 2, it talks about how God created this place called the Garden of Eden. I got to, y'all ready for this? I just heard a song in my head. Uh, 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 Names have meaning but not power. Do you understand the difference between a name and meaning and name and power? Meaning means it helps understand something. Power means it can do something. Okay? In Hebrew, this is very important, names had significant meaning. Significant meaning. This is why we see Abram. God changed his name to Abraham. Okay? Because with the sound added to it, it meant now God breathed. God's a part of it. Because that actually comes from the Greek word, or the Hebrew word ruah, which means spirit, God, spirit. Life, breath. So he's changed his name. Why? Because it had meaning to understand who Abraham was. Does that make sense to everyone? So when we see a specific garden called out, called the Garden of Eden, the name tells us something about it. Would that make sense? For instance, if you were trying to, and I'm saying, I was going down the interstate. What's the first thing you do is ask me, what interstate? Right? I cannot tell you how many times I've been talking on the phone with my wife, and she's lost somewhere. She says, I'm on a highway. What highway? I don't know. Are you heading north and south? I don't know. Why? I need names. I need meaning. I need direction and understanding, yes? So when we see a garden that has a specific name, to the Hebrew people especially, it had significant meaning. Vast, vast meaning. So they, they understood what they were talking about. Now, again, it doesn't have power. 
doesn't create things and do things on its own. It communicates something to us. Does this make sense? You're going to stay with me for a minute? You're already on and I even got to the meat. What does the name Eden mean is the question. Now, I could explain to you, and I will, in extreme quick detail. So this is going to be like Jared on, like, fast forward four. So if you're watching on YouTube, just slow it down if you can't keep up with me real quick, okay? In Hebrew, it is much like Japanese or Chinese where their language has marks in it, and each mark meant something, okay? So when you break down and you look at the word Eden in Hebrew, it's got these marks, and those marks translated and meant what, it, what they meant. So each kind of letter had a meaning and things behind it. And here's basically what it would mean. Eden means spot, the first letter spot. The next one is moment. The next one is presence. The next one is open door. So the name Eden, where they got it from, was they literally created it to mean spot, moment, presence, open door. So when it said the Garden of Eden, it meant a guarded or protected place in which there's a spot for moments where presence is an open door. That's what it meant. So when they talk about Adam being placed in the garden, they're saying he was placed in this spot for the moment where this presence, whose presence, pray tell. God's presence creates open doors. That's literally what, the, so Hebrew people would have said Garden of Eden and they would have been, okay, yeah, yeah, so this is a place. This is a spiritual place. Did it happen naturally on this earth somewhere? Yes, because if you read, it actually says where the physical area was located, the Tigris and Euphrates River. So it's like, a, it's like there's the physical place, but there's these spiritual things happening here. Because if you're not aware, you are not a natural being primarily. You're actually spiritual being primarily with a natural body. If we need to have that conversation, we'll have to have it afterwards. So you are a spirit and you have this body. So thus in the Garden of Eden, there is natural and spiritual things simultaneously existing just as there is right now. Does this make sense? Okay. God and heaven and things don't exist once you die. They already exist. I'm breaking apart a lot of people's theology, Jeremy. So this place is a spot for the moment where presence is an open door. Whose presence? God's presence. How do we know this? Because when we read the rest of chapter 2, where it shows us the natural place and it shows us the spiritual place, what we now see is man and woman, Adam and Eve, and it says that they're in this place in which there's a tree of life and tree of knowledge of good and evil, which are spiritual things. They're spiritual trees. They're spiritual understandings. They're spiritual things to partake of. And we also see, it says that the voice of God, now this is an interesting phrase here, the voice of God walked in the garden which is interesting, we won't go into it. It's just kind of interesting, they didn't say, and God walked in the garden. It says, the voice of God walked. The last time I checked, voices don't walk. So there's a little bit of an understanding there that we could, we could, under, uh, that we could just simply pull out. Meaning what? God was not physically on planet Earth. His spirit was. How? Because they were in a place for a spot, for the moment, where the presence of God was an open door. So as they're there in direct communion with God, it says his voice is walking in the garden. This is where chapter 3 comes in, okay? His voice is walking in the garden, 
And he comes and he says, because Adam and Eve, y'all, y'all know this already? They already took place. Let me just real quick. If you don't know the story, here's what happens. All right? Women screwed it up. <laughs> hey, you're about to get married. You, you got to wait to say that. <laughs> here's what happens. They're in the garden. The serpent, it says, comes and speaks to Eve. And gives her enough truth to be dangerous and says, hey, did God really say you're going to die? Maybe he didn't mean it. You know, you can eat of it. Like he actually, what he actually means is tree of knowledge, good and evil. And if you eat of it, you're going to be just like him. Uh, here's a little side note, fun part. They were already just like God. They were created that way. I just showed it to you. If you need the specific place, it's in Genesis 1, 26 is the first creation of all mankind. And then in Genesis chapter 2, you see the creation of Adam. It says his breath is breathed into it. He became a living soul. If you research that, it means now a spirit. He's a part of God's spirit, his spirit. Eternal. Not his physical form, but his natural form. Sorry, I said that reverse. Not his natural form, his spiritual form. Sorry. So, Eve then says, all right, she takes, and it wasn't an apple because it wasn't natural. But let's just use an apple so we can all hate on apple because, you know, that bite out of that apple on their logo is the original sin. So they take the fruit. Eve eats of it and says, I ain't dead yet. Takes it to Adam and says, hey, Adam, here you go. And Adam takes of it. Then they're like, we need to go to Buckle or Coles uh, real quick. We need to get some clothes because we're in our birthday suits. So they cover themselves. It says they come make themselves out of fig leaves and they cover themselves. And then here's where we get God's voice is walking in the garden, the spot for the moment where the presence of God creates this open door. And it says, God says, Adam, where are you? Now, come on, guys. Y'all just agreed that God's bigger than us. Did God know where they were at? Probably already knew what they did, yes? But yet he says, where are you? And Adam and Eve then respond. And they say, we're here, but we're hiding. Because we're afraid. Because we're naked and ashamed. And God's response is, who told you you were naked? There's so much packed into this, guys. So much. Notice God didn't say, no, you're not. He didn't contest the fact that what they said was true or not. What he asked was, where'd you get the information from? Because I didn't tell you that. Meaning it was of no consequence to me. This thing didn't matter to me. There's so much here, guys. Can, can I just, I'm going to go on a rant because I can. Y'all can just leave. It's free country for now. So leave whenever you want. <laughs> so. <laughs> I told you I say things I'm not supposed to say. Okay, I'm sorry. So much right here, guys. He didn't say it was true or false. He asked where they got the information from. The natural realm was so low on God's priority, he didn't even care if you had clothes. Think about it for a minute. There's a reason that it gives us this example of naturally naked, meaning there's so little concern of your natural form, I don't even care if it's covered because there's nothing about it that matters. Now, do not take that literally and let's go start a nudist calling That's not how this works. What this means is it's saying God's concern was so different 
from the natural concern that he didn't even bother mentioning it. Think about that for a minute. He didn't respond. There's the reasons they use the phrasing that they use. The people who wrote this were not idiots, and it was inspired by God himself to write it this way. Who told you? Because it wasn't me. Because that's not something I even cared about. And y'all know Adam. It's her fault. It's this woman you gave me, is the way he says it. And then he, God says, okay, what's up, Eve? And she says, no, 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 it's the serpent. And we see this whole thing happen. And then if you keep reading, you see that God then says, all right, well, here's what's got to happen. And I'm going to talk about what he says here in just a minute. But you may be asking to yourself, self, where is he going with this? What does this have to do with communion? Right here. Remember, God is singular, singular focused of holiness, of communion with him. What do we see happen? Who told you? Who have you been communing with? Because it wasn't with me. Because my voice was walking here in the garden, and you weren't talking with me when you heard that. We see a leaving of communion. Now, again, real quick, I just heard someone think, oh, we can't talk to non-believers. And this has nothing to do with it. This has to do with you and God only. People are not the enemy. There's not a single person on this planet that is your enemy, spiritually speaking. This is about you and God, so let's not bring anyone else into it because, after all, as I just told you, that's what happened. The spot for the moment where the presence of God is an open door. An open door to what? Communion. An open door to direct conversation with God. And at some point, somehow, communion with God was left. Because as the voice of God was walking, y'all do agree, God's bigger than us, yes? Raise your hand again, i got to make sure. Because that means he's omnipresent, which means he is present everywhere. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. So at some point, they left the direct communion with God and joined another communion. And began to listen to other things. And then partook of other things. Y'all remember the other word for communion is a partaker of. Began to partake of other things. Then spread that to each other. And then when God says, who told you all this? Because this was not a part of my communion. They start pointing at each other. Because they don't really maybe remember exactly where it came from <laughs> because maybe as they're sitting here they're like ah oh, yeah you didn't say that she did though now before y'all think oh he's about to hit some gossip stuff no y'all should know better than that what I'm talking about here is the thoughts of God we left his thoughts and started creating our own thoughts and started going to other people for their thoughts this is where a community becomes dangerous because guess what Adam and Eve and the serpent were? A nice little community right there in the Garden of Eden, just making their own, just coming up with their own intimate thoughts and ideas and how things worked, leaving the original conversation, the communion with God directly. We see this in our current situation of relationship. If we're on, 
I'm right here with you. If I need to step off the stage and not fall, I'm the, I ain't above you guys in this. I'm right here with you. If we're honest with ourselves, more often than not, before going to direct communion with God, we go to someone else and begin to listen to another communion, another conversation of an exchange of deep thoughts and ideas. And he says, that was for me. That's supposed to be for me and you. And when we have that first, now does that mean, again, because I hear some of you Americans going off on the extreme, zero to 60 in 1.2 seconds. Now you're over here, oh, I can't share. That's against victory and vulnerability. No. When you have your first relationship right, then God leads you as to what to share, when to share it, how to share it, and you are not creating a new communion. You're extending his communion, which creates community. But a community wholly centered on the spirit of God. Now, real quick, what happens after this? God sees this separate, if we can call it this, this separate communion, this separate community for me, this whole separate thing that was not of his. It was not his spot for the moment where his presence created an open door to commune with him. It was outside of that. And he said, well, because now of this, you're in a different state than you were to begin with. And I can't, y'all go read it. Some of y'all have this image of God with a whip and he's like, get out of the garden. He actually doesn't address them in anger at all. It's harsh, but it's love. This can go to show you that, yes, tough love is a God thing sometimes. But I'm going to stop stepping there because it may fall. Because if it is Spirit of God, it will be the proper alignment of kindness and love, the proper amount of harshness, it will be in the right realm when it's communion with him that makes you speak it. If not, it's outside of that. And so God's response is actually not wrath and anger. God's response actually is correction. From a place of love, he corrects. And here's what he does. He says, listen, there are some consequences to this. And he tells the man, and I told you I love this. I, I, I can read this over and over and over. So I am going to go on a little tangent for my own fun. Because he tells man, I'm going to greatly increase your work now. Here's why. Because now there's going to be thorns and thistles. So real quick, anyone who says work is a part of the curse, nope, read it. It actually says he was already working. His work was just very different. He says now there's going to be things that come against you because you created all of this stuff. And if you go back to Genesis 1-1 when he says, I took the death, chaos, and destruction, or without form and void, I got rid of it and made something good. Now you just introduce death, chaos, and destruction back into it. So now you're going to have to work twice as hard to do the very thing I created you to do in the first place. So he says, man, you're going to have to work harder at this. Then he looks at the woman. So any women, y'all think, oh, the pain of childbirth is from the eating of the tree. Nope, it says greatly increased the pain, which means there was already something. There was already work involved. It was just very different. So I'm gonna, this, this is going to happen. And he looks at the serpent and says, now you're going to crawl on your belly. And then there's a prophecy thrown in right there about Christ. He'll stomp your head, you'll, you'll bruise his heel, or you bruise his heel and all this kind of stuff. It's all in there. I'm not like just breezing over that for fun. It's just, we could spend hours upon hours because it's so cool. But there's a prophecy thrown in right there about the person of Christ. Why? Because y'all agreed. Raise your hand one more time. Y'all agree. God's omniscient. That means all-knowing, omnipresent, always present, and omnipotent or powerful. 
You all agreed to this. That means at that time, God already knew I got a game plan. He had lots of game plans. Lots of them. Tabernacle worship, one of them. We talked about that last week. The other one is the person of Christ. And so from that moment, there's a prophecy saying that I got this ultimate game plan that I'm going to be doing here. And this is what it says. It says, then God took and made them clothes. Not out of fig leaves, but out of skin. Made them these garments. And it said, your English translation sometimes says it drove them out. If you look at the word drove, because we, we're Texans, we think like cattle driving. We're behind the cattle and we're like, get out of here. No, drove means to lead. He led them out. And the reason he says he did it, he says, we cannot allow. This, this, is, this is God speaking, okay? I'm paraphrasing, but it's right here. If you want me, I will read all three chapters right now and get all happy with you. Well, I'll be happy. You may be tired, but. Because he says, Right now, in the state man is in, if he partakes of the tree of life, the original thing I created him to partake of, if he does it now, he'll stay in this state forever. And I can't have that because that's not my intent behind this. So he says, I must, and the word that is used would be our word of divorce. I must separate. So if communion is intimate exchanging of thoughts, this separation and divorce is saying, I'm no longer going to do that for a time. Then fast forward, the person of Christ comes and begins to explain to us the redemption plan of how he brings back that communion. And if you actually look at everything Jesus speaks about, which we're going to be doing on Wednesday nights, if you read every single you have a Bible that puts it in red, that's the words recorded of Jesus. It wasn't an MP3 recording of Jesus. It was the essence, the thoughts of what Jesus had said. If you look at every single one of them, they constantly keep pointing back to this idea of bringing back communion. That's why the last act he did with his disciples was a representation of that, and we call it to this day, communion. Partake of my body, the, the, my life, the very sacrifice that I do. Take part of my blood, the very breath in which I am. Be a part of that. Be intimately connected with those thoughts and ideas, exchanging your own, removing them, and only gaining his and getting back to first communion. Psalms 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, for his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night, for he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of living water that brings forth his fruit and his season. His leaves also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. This entire passage, if you keep reading, it talks about the reverse side of this. If you keep reading, this is a mirror image of Genesis, of the creation of man being planted in a spot for the moment where the presence of God is an open door and you have direct communication and communion with God. That's what it's like. Be planted there. Don't uproot and move and, and change communion. 
Don't go listening to other, it's between you and God. And in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, you completely undermine everything Christ did if you don't start going directly to God. There is a point in that we have to go to each other. When we're first getting to know, how do, how do we get to know? That's what we're all here for. There's nothing wrong with that. That's important. It's valid. But Paul, Paul puts it this way. He said, grow up. Get to the intimate thought communion with God. Handle some meat. And this is why I believe that God has put us on this journey to say get communion because this, this is the way I want to phrase it to us as a body. Whether you, you're brand new here, you're still a part of the body of Christ, and I believe this is a, a part of all of it. <laughs> I believe the Spirit is screaming out saying, I'm reclaiming my church. There's nothing wrong with some of the things that we do in our modern church. We have cameras, we have lights, blah, 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 blah. There's nothing wrong with that stuff. So if you're thinking that, you're wrong. But he says, I'm reclaiming my church from an area of entertainment, and I want it to be an area of communion, and I'm reclaiming it. And all of you, myself included, everybody say, Jared's talking to himself, okay? Jared's talking to himself. Okay, yes. Jared's always talking to himself. Yes, I am. (laughs) He says, I'm reclaiming my church. And then he says this, All of you need to grow up and get out of the way because I got more that need to come in. But they can't come in. They can't become a part of this community because it's so fractured and broken. Y'all are all talking to you. Come talk to me and I'll fix it. Now, real quick, some of y'all just heard fix it, make it all perfect and better. That's not what I said. I said fix it, meaning make it the right way, which is not the most comfortable way. Very rarely is it ever. So before you go quoting Jeremiah 29, 11, oh, the thoughts that I have towards you, thoughts of peace and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. Before you go quoting that, read it in context. That doesn't mean he's trying to make your life all perfect and better. The lie that you have been sold, that when you become a believer, everything gets better. No, it gets a little bit harder in the natural, but it has a spiritual reward. That's what Jesus says constantly. And God is screaming out, and the Spirit of God, in my opinion, is screaming out. This is what God is, I'm reclaiming it. And to do that, i got to take apart some things, but my foundation is good. If you let me set it and settle it, I'm going to have to correct a little bit. If you get back into communication with me, to commune with me, stop listening to other communications and communions. Go directly to me. If it's not clear for you, that's what we're here for. We may be a representation of the Spirit of God here, but you are not the Spirit of God we must be very careful that we don't act like it. The goal is to get into constant communion. Not momentary communion, but constant communion. In my mind, if you've ever seen Braveheart, if you haven't, go watch it. It's a godly movie. There's a character in Braveheart. He's also an Irishman, I think. And he's a crazy man. And in the movie, he's sitting there talking to him and getting the soup. Y'all know which scene I'm talking about? He's drinking soup. He's like, yes, Father, I'll tell them. And he starts talking to Almighty. And he's like, that's not what I'm talking about doing. If God happens to speak to you that way, and that's how it works, it better be God. And if it is, people will not look at you like a crazy person. God will do something in that moment. What I'm talking about in communion starts with the thoughts. 
It starts with exchanging your perception, your view, and your thinking towards a thing to make it line up with the thinking and the thoughts that God has already said. If you're unfamiliar with what that is, you can also read in Genesis chapter 1 where he creates man, and verse 27, he says, and God blesses them, and then he lists a thing. He said, this is kind of my method of thinking. It's very overarching, but this is my method of thinking. Be fruitful. Multiply, replenish, subdue, have dominion. He's saying, this is kind of my general concept of what you're supposed to be doing here. If you need it a little bit further, there's tons of books right here that begin to describe the character, will, plan, and purpose of God. Let's get back to that. That's what I mean by communion. Starts with the thought. And my last little point here with it for constant communion. It starts with the thought And your emotions and feelings towards the matter are irrelevant, just as irrelevant as it was that man was naked originally. It's irrelevant. We must not mistake irrelevance for meaning not painful or something. It just means it's irrelevant. It's not a part of the equation for God, and it shouldn't be for us. And what you end up finding is the more that you begin to replace your thoughts with his thoughts the emotions begin to align up. Your actions begin to line up. Everything begins to line up. You begin to look at situations quite differently than you looked at them before. But if we approach it from the reverse, we'll never get to communion. Because approaching it from the reverse, the only way we have is the communion within ourselves, which is quite egotistical and narcissistic or communication with others, which if we're all not communicating with the Spirit of God directly, then guess what we're doing? Just propagating more death, chaos, and destruction. And this is the journey that God has placed us on for the last several months, and I have no clue when he's going to release us from it. But we will continue. That's one of the reasons that this other weird thing he asked us, because we're all some coffee-drinking fools. And we got the bar stool tables and he said, take all of that and as an act of worship and submission to me to say, I would rather have communion with you than anything else. He said, just leave it out there for now. You would have thought, I mean, that was like hair lip the Pope. <laughs> Is that too country for some of you? <laughs> you would have thought for some of us, what? God started correcting. Again, before y'all are like, Oh, see, it's all religious. No, it's just an act to say, how much, are you, how much are your thoughts on me and not on something else? And I found myself in here yesterday trying to get things fixed and ready, drinking my Red Bull and walking into the sanctuary. And God's like, I thought you weren't supposed to. Oh, God. Walking back outside. So every time I wanted to drink, I had to walk out there. Every time I wanted to drink. And it got really annoying. I'm telling the truth from my perspective because I was like, y'all are like, oh, it's a pastor of a church. I was in here by myself. I was like, you know, like it's not a service. Like I could have my Red Bull in here. And I was trying to convince myself that it was perfectly fine that I did the thing that I wanted to do. And y'all are all sitting here thinking, it's just drinking Red Bull in a room. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with God said, I need you to understand the level that my spirit and your spirit are supposed to be connected and the desire and the focus is supposed to be so high. So I'm asking these little things of you just to check yourself. And as we leave this place this morning, or afternoon, whatever time it is, as we head into the next stage of our week, our months, 
our years, that from this moment forward, let's begin to step back. Let's begin to actually glorify Christ by saying, I step into that communion. I abandon my thoughts and my reason, and I only want to gain his. And the last little thing is test on the way. Scripture tells us test comes for the word's sake. So for most of us, the test will come probably before we leave the parking lot. It's a little bit exaggerative, okay? But the test will come quickly where we will be given the opportunity to begin to think your own way or think God's way. You'll be given the opportunity to speak what you want to say or to hold your mouth shut and say what God does. The test will come. Do not be surprised by it. This is just for my own edification here. I am perplexed as to how often myself and all of us are so surprised by the very thing that we just said three days ago we knew was coming. We are the species with amnesia. Let's not forget that the test is coming because if we pass the test, that means studied and we know we're approved. And God says, all right, now let's move on to this next little thing.